Hi there. Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. This week, we'll look at the context for contemplative practice, which a lot of great teachers encourage us is kindness or self-compassion. Evidently, for contemplative practice to work, we'll need this. And we're also told that as we practice for a decent chunk of time, we might well discover it happening for us. So this episode, we'll consider the thinking along these lines from a woman we mentioned a couple of podcasts back, a psychologist who teaches at Santa Clara University named Shauna Shapiro. I will pass on some of her affecting stories, and we'll consider how this kind of self-compassion can overcome shame and can offer us benefits that even something like self-esteem can't. We'll look at how exactly to move this direction, and I'll pass on a great story about Archbishop Desmond Tutu that I heard in support of this. And then we'll close with a rich perspective from my wife, Grace, about how God fundamentally addressed this for her earlier in life as she learned what it looked like for her to learn to hear God's voice. This is a gift that's kept on giving for her ever since. And let me briefly mention that if you'd be interested in actually connecting with actual human beings from various parts of America and beyond, we do have three weekly groups that you are welcome to poke your head in on to see if they might delight and encourage you as they do for many people. You can learn more about them at journey-on.net and also learn there how to check them out. And if you like the podcast, we would love it if you could take a moment to give it a good rating and review wherever you are listening to it. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to it, subscribe to it. All that said, let's take a look at On Self-Compassion and Hearing God's Voice. Just today, I got a flurry of communication about a juicy story that would have deeply affected me and some of my friends a few years back but which now involved a circle of people we were all no longer uh, a part of. We weren't in that group. But no doubt, it's a humdinger of a story, and it briefly was sort of fun to peek in on social media in particular to see how it was playing out, which seemed to have a new update of like 10 seconds or so. It was really juicy. After, to be honest, enjoying the entertainment value of the whole thing, I took time to do my morning contemplative practice. If you've been listening to this podcast, you'll get the spirit of what that might look like. So perhaps among a few other things, I will notice my breath and then notice when my thoughts or emotions encourage me to follow them rather than my breath. And then with an attitude of kindness and friendliness, I'll let my thoughts and emotions go and just return again to my breath. Sometimes I'll make sure to include what's often called mindfulness, which here is to notice and name some of those thoughts and emotions that are passing through the clear sky, as it were, of my consciousness. And then I'll go back to my breath and sort of camp out there with God for a bit until doing the whole process again. So this morning, the juicy story was front and center in my thinking as I sat down for this sort of practice. So after noticing that that was the case, I named it, and then I named the flurry of my own thoughts and emotions that were a part of how I had taken the story in. And as I kept noticing those things, I realized that my primary emotion was one that had been hidden by all the schadenfreude or voyeurism on other people's problems that I'd been feeling. And that primary emotion, it'll sound bad, but it's good in the end. The primary emotion, I think, was indifference. That might sound, again, sort of uncaring, but it was really helpful for me because I realized how some years back, I too would have been caught up in all the drama that was coming my way here, but how in a surprise, perhaps all this contemplative work had taken me to a different spot than that, a spot where I could wish all parties well, but I could also let their story be their story and experience my own life and story with God right now. And that process got me thinking back to whatever benefits I seem to have gotten from all this practice. And one of the most obvious was a surprising one, the sort of kindness or friendliness towards myself that I mentioned, or put differently, what some teachers would call self-compassion. I realized that a bit earlier in life, I might have heard all the drama in my juicy story, 
And it would have affected me because I, too, was trying to work out all sorts of related drama as I tried to keep all the balls of my life in the air. And so often saw ball after ball, as it were, drop, and then I would judge myself for what a bad juggler I was. I, I felt so grateful this morning for a gift I had been given of a different fundamental starting point that both felt a whole lot better and that seemed to empower some very different choices for me. And I want to talk about some of the ins and outs of what that starting point is by looking at the work of a psychologist who's also a contemplative, whom I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, named Shauna Shapiro. And then by switching gears to let you hear some reflections from, our, from my wife, Grace, about how God offered her a very different way into those benefits. It's a pretty powerful story. But first, some thoughts from Dr. Shapiro. So as before, these are from her book with the charming and self-compassionate title of Good Morning, I Love You. Mindfulness and Self-Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. And in this self-compassion section, she starts with a story from the military. So she has led groups with veterans suffering from PTSD. And she tells a story about a soldier who, in a group session, said that he just wanted, for the record, to say he did not want to get better because he didn't deserve it because of the terrible things he'd done. So a powerful and kind of you know, well, that hits you, doesn't it? I'm mean, a powerful place to start. I'll get to where his story went in a minute, but maybe a beginning point for thinking about self-compassion, our subject of the day, is to think about his story and ask ourselves, but what if I'm in the wrong? You know, there's so many things in our lives that we're not that compassionate towards ourselves from because we think we haven't done well or we've done a bad thing or we are just so ineffectual or something that we judge ourselves for. But Dr. Shapiro encourages us that we can even learn to be kind to ourselves when we're in the wrong, and that doing that doesn't let ourselves off the hook, and it's not even about letting ourselves off the hook. We do it not to do that, but just because we're hurting, because this whole self-compassion idea offers a radical approach, which is that you don't have to be perfect to be worthy of love and kindness, which turned out to be very significant for this veteran. So she talks about how our two most common and ineffective coping mechanisms in life in general are either first to turn on ourselves with self-judgment and shame when we can't whip our life into shape some direction, or secondly, to do a completely different thing, to pivot and to boost our self-esteem with pep talks. And her argument is that judging ourselves and kind of whipping ourselves harder to do good things or giving ourselves pep talks that we're, we are good enough both are ineffective strategies. So shame, she starts by saying, just completely doesn't work. She quotes the cartoonist Jules Pfeiffer from back in the day who said, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's walk, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. So she tells stories about how she's tried to work this out in her own life as a contemplative and a psychologist teaching about this stuff. And she tells an affecting story about how as a a uh, young single mom who's also a teacher and has a busy life. She had to pick up her son, who then was a young boy, maybe three years old, from daycare. And students were kind of waiting for her at her door. And she kept taking one more student and went even a little longer than she should have gone before picking up her son, whose name is Jackson. And by the time she finally left, she shows up to pick up Jackson, who's standing forlornly on the curb um, because every other mom has picked up every other kid and Jackson looks desolate. So here's what she writes about that. She says, while it's natural to feel regret about making a mistake, especially if it causes pain to someone else, if I fall prey to the judgmental thoughts that were crossing my mind then, not only are they adding to the pain I already feel for being late, 
but they're also preventing me from being attuned to Jackson as he gets in the car and inhibiting my ability to learn from the situation and handle it differently in the future. What I really needed was something like this. Oh, sweetheart, it's painful to see Jackson sitting alone waiting for you. Next time, remember not to squeeze one more student meeting into office hours. And that would be followed, she says, by a deep breath to help me reset and be the present loving mother I want to be as I pick up my son. That was a good story. I mean, it kind of hit me as I heard it. And I thought, it's plenty of times I've been running late. And the first thing I want to do is frantically apologize to everyone that I, you know, I screwed up or some such thing. And that sort of reset, the sort of self-compassion, the sort of ability to say, well, I need to behave differently next time or make a different choice. But meanwhile, I am here. And I think that's, I don't know, good story. So she says, shame could lead to a few things we're not going to like, which as I'm sure you could guess. So shame could lead to self-sabotage, like yo-yo dieters who can lose weight and start to gain it again and feel bad about themselves. So you gain a bit more because now you're eating because you can't, you couldn't keep the weight off, et cetera. Shame, that's not a good thing. It can lead to depression by way of self-criticism when we feel like we aren't performing well enough. It can lead, she says, to inflexibility as we enter into the grip of fight, flight, or freeze responses. If we're in shame, we lose creativity to make better choices in our life. But by contrast, when we act with self-compassion, we're taught that we trigger the release of oxytocin, which is the, what the love hormone that facilitates safety and connection, and also triggers the release of endorphins, which are our natural feel-good neurotransmitters. And so that you might feel like, well, if we are feeling shame or feeling bad about ourselves, we don't deserve oxytocin and endorphins. And why feel so bubbly when, you know, there's all these bad things that happen, like leaving poor Jackson standing alone on the curb or whatever else. But we're told without oxytocin, like what oxytocin and endorphins do for us is they give us flexibility to want to feel better, but also make positive choices that do change our lives. So I think it's worth considering. Anyway, she says shame doesn't work, but neither does self-esteem. And that's surprising, right? You would think there's so much teaching about how to bolster your self-esteem helps us. She says actually all the teaching, all the research says it doesn't help us. It's a bad idea. So self-esteem requires success to prove your self-worth. Where self-compassion says you're just worthy because you're human. You don't need to prove anything. Self-esteem triggers, we're told, constant comparison to determine our self-worth. Am I better than you or am I worse than you? If I'm better than you, I have self-esteem, but maybe I'm worse than you and then I've got shame. So there was a research project at UC Berkeley where researchers administered this impossibly hard spelling test that all the students failed. And half the students got encouraged to be self-compassionate. Things like, try not to be too hard on yourself, or it's common for students to have difficulty with tests like these. And the other half, because it's an experiment again, were given statements designed to boost their self-esteem. You must be intelligent if you got into Berkeley, things like that. The students who were encouraged to be self-compassionate ended up, as you would guess, being more successful on the next test. But why? It's because, thanks, we're told, to self-compassion, they didn't see the first failed test as a failure, but as an opportunity to learn. So... As a result, they likely spent more time studying because they weren't devastated by the previous failure. By contrast, the students who got given the self-esteem-boosting statements got more affected by their previous failure, and it felt futile to them to study. Here's how the lead researcher, Juliana Briennes, summarized the findings. We found that people who were taught to be kind to themselves felt more motivated to see their mistakes as a chance for growth. So the key difference, we're told, between self-compassion and self-esteem is that with self-compassion, you have freedom to fail. And there are Bible verses about things like that. I think of Proverbs 24, 16, which says, the godly may trip seven times, but they're going to get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. 
self-compassion. You can, you're resilient. You can keep going. But with self-esteem or shame, the disaster is enough to just knock you off your game. So let's think back to our opening story, the veteran who didn't want to get better. You know, we're told that sometimes the most powerful moments of self-compassion get catalyzed when we receive compassion from others. So he's in this group of other veterans who hear how he doesn't want to get better because he didn't deserve it because of the horrible things he's done. And it turned out that the compassion the veteran received from these other men after he'd shared his most shameful moment was a real turning point in his recovery from PTSD. Here's what he told Dr. Shapiro. He says, the military trains you to survive in combat. When you're there, you rely on your training and you trust your instincts. But nothing can prepare you to fight against yourself. How do you fight a battle when the good guy and the bad guy are the same guy? I finally realized that fighting won't lead to peace. I will never forget what happened. But I'm not going to waste any more energy beating myself up for it. I still have life inside of me and I want to live it for something bigger than myself, which I suppose speaks to the classic biblical virtue of forgiveness. What does it mean for God to forgive? Here's how a researcher named Kristen Neff put it. Look, you don't have to be special to have self-compassion. You just have to be a mess like every other human being. Or here's how Anne Lamott, the great memoirist and Christian writer, put it. Never compare your insides to everyone else's outsides. In our online groups, when I talked about this, that was one of the more popular things from this whole discussion. Never compare your insides to everyone else's outsides. Dr. Shapiro talks about roadblocks to self-compassion that come up whenever she teaches on this, like, I'm just going to give you some quotes. Uh, firstly, it undermines motivation is one of the roadblocks that people might mention to her. And she responds that one of the biggest blocks of self-compassion is the belief that we've got to, you know, criticize ourselves when we don't live up to our own standards or we won't have motivation to change. But science tells us that is just not the facts. It doesn't help us. Secondly, people say, look, self-compassion is selfish. So, once again, research suggests the opposite to that. So professors at the University of Texas at Austin recruited 100 couples who'd been in a romantic relationship for a year or longer, and they found that self-compassionate individuals got described by their partners as being more caring, more accepting, more respectful than their self-critical counterparts who got described as being more detached, aggressive, and controlling. Now, again, you would think if you're in a relationship and someone you make mistakes that you'd want your partner to be self-critical. I shouldn't have made that mistake as opposed to self-compassionate. They kind of, oh, sweetie, you know, it is hard to have the pain of this experience you're going through. And maybe, you know, you need to make different decisions next time. But let's be present right now to your partner and let's figure out a way forward. That sort of self-compassionate response seems weaker or maybe selfish. Like maybe you should be hard on yourself. Maybe you should beat yourself up for the ways you screw up and then that'll make you not screw up again and you'll be a better partner. But maybe you can just imagine even hearing that, how we go into the flight, freeze, whatever they want uh, response where it just freezes us up and then the partner gets described as detached, aloof, etc. So I think that was a pretty interesting. Uh, another criticism that she hears is self-compassion is self-indulgent. Um, however, she's got research suggesting that self-compassionate people have healthier behaviors than non-self-compassionate people in things like exercising, practicing safer sex, eating healthfully. When we care about ourselves, we tend to take care of ourselves and that tends to be good for everybody. Uh, fourthly, it, we're told, she hears, self-compassion undermines responsibility and integrity, maybe like the it's selfish thing. But instead, we don't tend to let ourselves off the hook if we are self-compassionate. Instead, we have the safety to squarely take on our negative qualities without our self-worth being on the line. Here's another study at the UC, at, uh, UC Berkeley. 
Students got asked to recall a recent action they had felt guilty about, like cheating on an exam or lying to a romantic partner or saying something harmful. Then each student got one of three instructions. Either write to themselves for three minutes from the perspective of a compassionate and understanding friend, or write about the positive qualities they have that might counteract the bad thing they were thinking about, or write about a hobby they enjoyed. Obviously, it's a neutral thing. Later, the students got interviewed. Students who wrote to themselves from the perspective of a compassionate friend got more motivated to apologize for their action and more committed to not repeating their behavior. By acknowledging their failures with compassion, Dr. Shapiro says, they were able to learn from their mistakes and take responsibility for them. And finally, the the criticism of the idea of self-compassion she hears in her travels is self-compassion is weak. But again, think back to the story about the veteran we just talked about. I think it turns out to be one of our most powerful sources of strength and resilience during hard times as our opening story, again, of this vet might tell us. So she suggests there are three elements of self-compassion, and you're going to hear a whole different take on this from my wife, Grace, in just a minute, who would agree that self-compassion is crucial, would, will tell stories about how that was really challenging for her to feel self-compassion at one key point in her life, and how it kind of took a connection with God just to kind of cut through all that stuff and spin her around. So this is from a psychologist's perspective on how to find self-compassion, do this, this, and this. But there's also kind of from a believer's perspective of finding self-compassion, which perhaps can just cut through it in a far more powerful way. And again, a teaser for where we're headed before this uh, podcast is over. But here's Dr. Shapiro's three bits of advice. First, the first element of self-compassion is mindfulness. So the thing I was able to do this morning when I was feeling about my delicious schadenfreude about all the drama in this world around me, but mindfulness helped me realize, yeah, I'm, that's all there, but more deeply there is sort of indifference of a way of just letting people, letting it go and being in my own space and receiving from God in my own way and recognizing all the judgments I used to feel when I was in very similar spaces. And boy, that felt good. Mindfulness is the first step she suggests towards self-compassion. We need to be aware of pain before we can heal it. The second step is kindness. Again, as we are mindful and as we return to our breath, we're encouraged to do it with kindness and friendliness. So kindness, she describes as the process of actively soothing ourselves, of offering support and care when we're in pain. So her proposed words to herself when she saw poor Jackson, three-year-old Jackson on the curb, forlorn, and she feels terrible and she shouldn't have seen that last student. But the sort of kindness of soothing herself and sort of her internal voice saying, you know, using words like sweetheart, which is very feminine, but kind of like, oh, sweetie, you know, it's hard to see Jackson in pain and to feel the pain you're feeling. And yes, by all means, you need to say no to the next student under these circumstances. But right now, let's just be present to Jackson and to you and to this experience and see where that goes. So we don't soothe ourselves, she tells us, to make the pain go away. We do it because we're in pain, period. We imagine how we might support a friend who is suffering that same thing we're suffering. We take it from a different the perspective of a kind friend, and we speak to ourselves in that way. Kindness, mindfulness, then kindness. And thirdly, common humanity. So recognizing our common humanity, we get told, reminds us we're not alone in our suffering. I really love this one. I mean, this is where my Desmond Tutu story will come in in a minute. Our belief that this is, you know, my personal problem or that we are the only one suffering isolates us, separates us. But understanding our common humanity helps us recognize that other people also, you know, have sick children or get stuck in traffic or get divorced or whatever. I, the story I thought of from Desmond Tutu was he tells about what he does 
uh, what he did, he's since uh, recently passed away, as I'm sure you know, but that when he was alive, he apparently suffered from persistent insomnia, as so much of the world does. And he had a practice when he was up for long hours in the night where he would pray for every person on earth who was awake at the same time suffering from insomnia. He would say, they are my brothers and sisters. We are in this together. And he'd pray for them. And that would kind of comfort him that he was not alone. He had common humanity. I thought about that a lot. Things where I feel bad about something or I'm feeling bad about myself in some way. I, it's been a trigger to me in this teaching of thinking, maybe I'm just going to pray for everyone on earth who feels the same way as I'm feeling right now, whatever the thing might be. And I found it to be very powerful and just the way he's talking about because it, it made me feel like I'm not alone, not the only person, you know, you know, if Shauna Shapiro feels like a bad mom for having uh, left her son to wait on the curb for a few extra minutes for her, she could pray for everyone on planet Earth who feels like a bad mom right now or a bad parent right now and all the pain that that brings when we feel that way. And she could pray for them and bring herself into that story, common humanity. So the three ways to find self-compassion in her view, mindfulness kindness, and then common humanity. So she suggests things like, okay, call to mind a current challenge and then be mindful. Write down the situation as clearly and objectively as possible and notice how you feel as you as you write about it. And then kindness. You write down some kind statements you can make to yourself in the face of the situation, like you're overeating because you feel lonely. I care about you. As you write kind statements like that, she's very into things like put your hand on your heart because it releases oxytocin, I guess, as you do. You feel the kindness. I've tried that more, and some people in our groups have said, oh, I've done the hand on the heart thing recently, and it has been helpful. Uh, I've recently been thinking about this thing, which I suspect we'll talk about here sometime soon, this Jesuit practice, probably the most famous Jesuit contemplative practice called the examine. Many people do it. And there's a link between the examine and putting your hand on your heart that I've, I never knew that I've been discovering. Wow, check that out. That does kind of change things, doesn't it? So anyway, she suggests that it, as you are kind and you, you know, think about what a kind friend would say to you in the circumstance, you put your hand over your heart as you do as a kind of a self-care gesture. And then common humanity, she just says, consider prayer. So it's natural to feel sad after having an argument with my son. You might say to yourself, many parents struggle with their children. I love my son. I feel scared for safety. And so I pray for myself and for all parents who are scared about their children right now. All right. Hearing about all the self-compassion stuff in our online groups. Again, my wife, Grace, had a provocative response, which I thought you might enjoy hearing. So, Grace, what came to mind for you as you heard me pass on these thoughts about self-compassion? Yeah, I think what came to mind for me is um, like this honestly is a big topic in my life because um, I mean, maybe because I I feel like I was so bad at self-compassion, even just temperamentally, like my um, temperamentally, I have a history of being sort of a perfectionist and kind of have like this harsh inner critic and uh, it's demanding and it's mainly demanding at me. Um, So like internally, like keeping up with my standards has always like been a thing. And then, um, so I don't know, I just, I feel like self-compassion, um, you know, in a place around something that I'm like bad at or weak at, like, boy, that was a hard one. And, um, so honestly, part of what comes to mind for me, Dave, is I, I feel like, I don't know how I would have gotten there without help and uh, like real help from God. And specifically what I mean by that is, um, like learning how to hear God's voice or sense God's voice to me, um, that has been crucially helpful in um, being able to 
give myself um, compassion or self-compassion. Um, and uh, maybe just to back up on my story with that, like I grew up in a large Presbyterian church and um, I guarantee you, I don't think I ever heard the phrase growing up there, um, listening prayer or hearing from God or conversational prayer. Like that was, that was not something anybody talked about. But, um, but when I went off to college and, uh, I was in like a student Christian fellowship, there were a few people there who did use sort of language like that. And I began to be just super intrigued. Like I thought, like, what are they talking about? And, gosh, is that even possible? And if that's possible, I really want that. And, you know, so then I was like praying about like, God, would you teach me how to hear your voice? And I can remember um, like being in my dorm room and thinking, you know, I was like doing my usual prayers, which are more like kind of monologuing, you know, like telling God all the stuff that I'm thinking or feeling or that I feel like I need or that I'm praying for for other people. But then I thought, okay, okay, now I'm going to listen. And I, and I want to try hearing from God, you know, so then I'd be really still and I'd like look up and, and like wait. And I just feel like nothing was happening. And I, and I kept trying and I just, you know, it was like crickets. Like I just felt like nothing. I wasn't getting anything. I had no impressions, nothing. And so, I mean, I just was really discouraged after a while thinking like, well, clearly I don't know what I'm doing here and I'm not good at this. And, uh, um, and then if actually if you fast forward a few years, after I graduated, I moved to San Francisco. I was doing um, some inner city like kids ministry and I was going with my roommate and ministry partner to like a local charismatic church. And there also there was like a common kind of culture like people did talk in that sort of language of like hearing from God and receiving from the Holy Spirit and um, and I just thought like, wow, I want to learn from these people like they they have something I want to learn. And um, and then one day at church, literally someone got up and just gave an announcement for an upcoming workshop on keeping a prayer journal. And um, and that um, I don't think I even went to the workshop, but it was more like how they described it in their announcement. I thought like, boy, I should try that. And um and also at this time, like I had started to get to know Dave and it was clear to me he had this kind of chatty conversational life with God. I just thought like, I so want that. And, uh, but I thought maybe, maybe keeping a journal would, would be good for me. Um, like I knew Dave and his story is he would go out on these like walks and he would kind of like talk to God in his head and hear back. And, you know, and I, I just, that didn't work for me. Like I was so distracted. If you take me out on a walk, I'm like, noticing the birds and the trees and the light and, you know, like I'm, I can't follow a train of thought in my head, you know? So I thought, okay, okay, I'm going to do this journaling thing. I'll give it like a month, month or two. You know, I thought, here's an experiment. I'm going to withhold judgment and I'm just going to go with it. I'm going to like, you know, date my entries. I'm going to write down, you know, um, hi God, how are you? You know, and I'm going to write the first thing that comes to mind and just like start a conversation. And, um, so literally, it'd be like, hi, God, how are you? And it's like, well, Grace, I'm fine. How are you? You know, and it'd be like, well, I had like this really challenging day at work today. And like this thing happened with my coworker. And like, what do you think about that? I'm like really stressed or, you know, so whatever it was that was going on, I would be talking to God about it. But then I would say, and what would you say about that? Or what do you think? And then I would just write the first impression that came to mind. And um and I was writing fast, like I did have impressions that were coming to mind. And then I could interact with that, like, wow, really? You know, what do you mean? You know, or does that mean this? And so I, I would be able to like have questions back and forth and have a dialogue. And, um, 
You know, and then there's that niggling thought in the back of your head. You're thinking like, am I just making this up? You know, but I thought, no, okay, no, no. You know, we're, I'm holding, you know, all judgment in abeyance, you know, for this experiment, you know, and, uh, but honestly, I don't know that I even got a month in. I began to think like, you know, I think something, something is actually happening here, something real, because I thought I'm getting things back that I literally don't think I could make up. Like, like in many cases, I felt like there's, it's like somehow the voice is like more wise than I am. Like, I, it, I don't think I could make this stuff up. And, uh, and there were a couple instances where there was something like kind of predictive that I felt like God had said. And, and then it happened. I thought like, wow, okay, I really don't think I made that up. And, you know, and it, and it was just like this voice was really comforting. And, um, so I thought like, I think I'm on to something and I'm going to continue letting this experiment run. And it just felt like a breakthrough for me. Like I'd wanted for so many years to learn how to hear God's voice. And I finally felt like I had a practice, like a spiritual practice that I could do. And it, it was like, like quickly, I felt like I was gaining some traction in it. And um, so then if you like fast forward in my life, you know, Dave and I ultimately get married, you know, we live a few years in San Francisco, San Francisco and then we move to Boston, we're part of this church plant, and, and we start having kids. And, um, and I, you know, you need to know about me, like, I always wanted to be a mom, I was so excited to be a mom, I had done a ton of kids ministry, I thought I would be this great mom, you know. And um, I think what, what, um, was a little mortifying was to like find myself in it and realize like, wow, you know, being a mom of young children, babies and toddlers and tantrums and messes and fights. And, you know, like I just thought this, this is more challenging and uh, on a day to day basis. And, um, and I think so like that inner, perfectionists like um and some of you uh here is might be familiar with the enneagram which is sort of like the spiritual direction tool personality um sort of tool like on an enneagram i would be the one type which is often called the perfectionist and i f i feel like for me like the root sins of that are like anger and shame which is really like the flip sides for me i think of the same coin so it's like I have some child who's like misbehaving and acting out, you know, towards his brother. And then um, and then I'm angry at him and I like snap at him, you know, and then um, and then someone else is melting down and snap at that. You know, it's like I'm having a challenging parenting day. And in the end, I like feel ashamed that I'm like snapping at my beloved children. And then I feel angry at myself for snapping at my beloved children. And I'm angry at them for provoking me to snap at my beloved. <laughs> so it's like this little round and round, you know, the anger and shame sort of spiral about it. And, um, and it was something I was really deeply bothered by. And, um, along around about this time, totally unconnected. I don't know why, what, why I took it in my head. I thought, Oh, I'm going to do, um, I'm going to do a word study through scripture of my name, like grace, grace or gracious. And so I had one of those big fat concordances. I'm looking up all these things. And honestly, um, that had sort of an unexpected consequence for me because what I realized looking up all those references is grace or graciousness is really used in scripture almost entirely. It's only used to refer to God. It's like God is gracious. And, um, He's full of grace and compassion and mercy and, you know, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And, you know, and I just thought like, 
oh my goodness, you know, so while I'm struggling as this young mom with anger at my sweet kids, um, I think like, what, like who saddled me with this horrible name? You know, I thought like my name is Grace and I like fail every day, I feel like, to live up to that. And uh, so I just began to feel like my my own name was like mocking me. And it was so painful. And I remember the day, um, I don't know, I had all my kids. I was like unloading them somewhere for some errand and we were in the minivan. So I'm like getting kids out and uh, maybe we're in a rush for something. I don't know. And like one of my daughters did something that I thought like, oh, you know, no, 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 don't do that. And, and I like snapped at her and her sweet little face. She's like six years old. Her face fell and she burst into tears. You know, she's got like the sweet, sensitive temperament. And I just remember I crashed internally. I thought like, oh no, you know, like too much grace, you know, too harsh, you know, and I was so grieved at it. And around this time, um, yeah, I think, um, some of the other women leaders and I in the church, we were throwing like a women's conference. So I remember like, Near that time, we were up at this retreat center at a women's conference. Someone gave a talk, and um, there was a really good sort of ministry time. People were going forward to receive prayer. So there's a lot of people, and I am feeling so burdened in my heart and heavy over this whole, like, harshness towards my kids, and I don't know how to stop it. And, um, and so I'm, like, on the edge of sort of the crowd up there, and I'm just praying by myself to God and, like— weeping and, you know, and just telling God, like, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I hate this about myself. And, and at some point in it, I felt like I had a really strong impression of the words. And I felt like God was saying, Grace, Grace, you have this all wrong, as if your name is some standard that you have to live up to. But I want to tell you that your name is my promise over you, that I will have grace over you and over your parenting. And, um, boy, that, that word just like broke something asunder for me. I just started like weeping with gratitude. It was like the relief. I felt like that was like one of the best words I'd ever received from God. You know, that, that promise that he would have grace over me and grace over my parenting. Um, that was huge. And it really, that marked a turning point. I feel like in terms of my, obviously my relationship to my own name, you know, (laughs) feeling before it was mocking me, you know, to where I could, I could like appreciate my name, like my name is God's promise over me, uh, or to me, you know, so um, yeah, it was huge. And I think, you know, so just along these lines, like being able, I think that was a time in my life where I felt so low, and like, kind of helpless, and like, I was doing so poorly in this area you know, my self-esteem around it was so low. And then to have God speak so compassionately and graciously to me, um, like that turned out to be really life-changing. And I just felt like as I, you know, continued my practices, I tried to take a Sabbath once a week. I would bring my journal, you know, and and be writing back and forth, you know, um, with God. I just felt like getting God's voice in was really important. Starting to integrate the voice, that crazily gracious voice of God, you know, like so much more gracious than the ways I would speak to myself. It was like God's voice was coming from another planet. It was so amazing and gracious and kind. And uh, so I think that began to be really impactful. And, and 
over time, I felt like I could feel it, actually. Like I'd integrated enough of God's voice into me that I could tell when I was starting to berate myself like I used to do. And I would feel like this check in my spirit and think like, no, no, you know, like that is not how God would speak to you. And I could feel how it grieved God, you know, or if I started to like snap or lay into some child verbally, it's like I would feel caught up short, like, no, no, that is not how God would speak to them. And um, so I feel like it would help me like catch myself and and stop, you know. So... Um, all to say, yes. So this topic of self-compassion is really meaningful to me. And, um, and you know, even up to the current day, like um, it was just a f maybe a month ago, no, a little more than a month ago, our family had gone on this little fun overnight getaway thing. And then we were, after we'd come back from our trip, um, I remember being around the table and we were chatting and like somehow... <laughs> something triggered one part of the conversation of like how like some of the kids had been like in a separate car and had had been sort of like complaining about me like how exasperating mom is and I'm thinking like oh really you know and and then all of a sudden like they're just they're just telling their stories like yeah mom when you did this and blah 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 and you know my kids now they're like these savvy cool teenagers and young adults you know <laughs> they're way cooler than me you know so so it's like I'm just listening to them and, and like, I'm tempted to feel like, oh my gosh, they're piling on, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, but it's like, it was all around a basic theme of things like, like, mom, I don't like it when you, you didn't pay attention to me or, or your, your attention was really distracted. And then, oh, or you were like half checking your texts on your phone and you weren't really listening. Or I was telling you a story that was important to me and then someone else walked in the room and you completely switched over and like interrupted and we're talking to them. And, um, you know, so it's like one thing after another of like, you know, mom, I don't like it when you basically they're all talking in one form or another about my divided attention. And, um, and I remembered, you know, it's like our dinner kind of finished and everybody <laughs> went, you know, off and, um, and I went to my room and was like, like a little bit devastated and just thinking like, how am I gonna, like, like, God, what do I, I do with this? And uh, like, I, I don't want my kids to, you know, be comparing notes on how exasperating mom is, you know, and I thought like, how am I going to change and do better? I'd like to promise them I'll never do that again. But I thought, clearly, I have some issues around this because it's like kind of a habit and I don't even notice it half the time when I'm doing it. So I was, um, I was, I was journaling again, like, God, what would you say to me? Like, I'm, I'm so, um, like disheartened by this whole state of, of myself. And, uh, and once again, it's like, he speaks with that gracious voice. It's like, it's okay, Grace. And I know this is an area of weakness for you. And, uh, but it's something we can work on and you can come to me. I'm here and I can help you with this. And you can ask me every day for me to gather you and gather your attention and awareness so that you are whole. I thought of that. There's a Bible verse from one of the Psalms uh, that says, unite my heart to, um, I think in the King James, it'd be like, unite my heart to fear thy name, or it's like, unite my heart to reverence, you know, your name. And, uh, but I just thought like, I loved that idea of like, the, I actually need God to unite my heart, because otherwise, I'm like divided, like I'm so I'm kind of scattered, you know, I'm divided, my attention is really divided. So um, yeah, so all to say, I feel like, you know, 
I'm still I'm still trying to do this stuff, like like listening to God and needing His compassionate voice in areas where I feel like I'm not good at something. Um, it's been super helpful. Oh, I remembered one more thing. I did want to say, um, having uh, had all that pastoral experience for so many years in Cambridge with Dave, like. I for sure know, just from having a wide sampling of other people who are like trying to follow God, learn to hear God's voice, like different people, quote, hear or sense God's voice in different, all kinds of different ways. If you ask 30 people how they best receive from God, you will get 30 different answers just because God has wired us all differently. And so I always um, used to encourage, you know, people to share in groups, you know, how, what is working for different people, because it gives people ideas of different things they can try. And, um, and it's encouraging to like, vary the things we try. And also, I want to say too, on this podcast, sometimes ways that we've received from God in the past, like our season of life may change, and then that no longer works for us anymore. It's like, oh, you know, and then we need to like, find new ways to receive from God. So, um, yeah, I do just want to say that, you know, and I think contemplative, I know for a number of people that are in like our small groups that we know, for them, many of them feel like contemplative practices now are opening them up to where they feel like they're hearing God's voice again in new ways. So, and I think that's wonderful. And I think even for me, I'm realizing with contemplative practices, it's not always about words, right? Sometimes it's just about being with God or sort of beholding God or being with God in God's presence, um, if, if the goal, as we've talked on some of these podcasts, is union with God, well, you don't, you don't actually technically have to talk um, to do that. So, um, yeah, so I just want to encourage um, any people listening on this, like, try different things. Talk to other people who experience God, and uh, um, let's encourage one another in, in this whole area. Thank you so much, Grace. It's given me much to ponder and think about. And thank all of you for listening to this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. Uh, I will look forward to being back with you shortly.